Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, February the 11th, 2020. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on uh, in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the scheduled national elections in the Federal Republic of Nigeria, Africa's most populous state, amid security and economic concerns. Malawi has reported thousands of deaths resulting uh, from a cholera outbreak inside that southern African country. The economic community of West African states has received appeals from the military regimes in Mali, Burkina Faso, and Guinea, uh, seeking readmission to the regional body. And the president of the Republic of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, has delivered the annual State of the Nation Address in Cape Town. In the second hour, we continue our African-American History Month programming with a re-examination of the lives, times, and contributions of Dr. Anna Julia Cooper and Mrs. Ida B. Wells Barnett. Finally, we listen to excerpts from the State of the Nation Address uh, given uh, by President Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the West African state of Ghana uh, with the classic Ramblers dance band from Ghana. Let's listen in.
some in possession of the new uh, bank notes are already fueling a thriving black market, worsening the shortage. And people want to know why is there a shortage of petrol uh, in Nigeria, which is Africa's largest producer of uh, petroleum. Uh, petroleum shortages are common in Nigeria, Africa's largest crude oil producer, but does, it does not refine it and has to import domestic for domestic needs. The country just doesn't have the money to pay for petrol, explained Tunde Ajale. Supplies are hamstrung by fuel subsidies, a highly sensitive subject. The Nigerian government pays part of the cost of petrol at filling stations, allowing people to buy at artificially low prices. The system costs billions of dollars of public funds every year. Now, with the prices soaring as a result of the Russian special military operation in Ukraine and the European Union and uh, United States uh, sanctions against uh, Moscow, the government uh, in Nigeria has been overwhelmed by the cost of the subsidy system and can no longer pay traders. And you can read this article in its entirety uh, at the Pan-African Newswire website. In the southern African state of Malawi, the southern African nation has been battling its worst cholera outbreak on record, with nearly 37,000 cases reported uh, since uh, 11 months ago. Confirmed cases have already been reported across the border in Mozambique. While the World Health Organization said it has assessed the current risk of spread inside Mali and to other neighboring countries as, quote, very high, unquote. Since the outbreak began, Mali has carried out two large vaccination campaigns, but due to limited supplies, uh, has offered just one of the usually recommended two all cholera vaccine doses. The deadliest cholera outbreak in Malawi's history has killed at least 1,210 people. Uh, while vaccines remain scarce and several other African nations report outbreaks, the World Health Organization uh, has said. And uh, <clears throat> you can also read this article in its entirety on the Pan-African Newswire website. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In uh, the West African states of uh, Guinea, uh, Burkina Faso, and Mali, Foreign ministers from the three African countries have undergone military coups, have called for their reinstatement uh, into the key regional bloc uh, following a trip to the region uh, by Russian envoy Sergei Lavrov. The top diplomats of Mali, Guinea, and Burkina Faso said in a joint statement dated February the 9th that they had agreed uh, to work together to push for the lifting of their suspensions uh, from the economic community of West African states and uh, the African Union, Abdullahi Jope of Mali, Marisanda Kuyate of Guinea, and Burkina Faso's Olivia Romba held talks in Ouagadougou after Lavrov traveled to Mali earlier in the week to pledge assistance to West African countries battling jihadists. The three countries had, quote, agreed to pool their efforts and undertake joint initiatives for the lifting of the suspension measures and other restrictions, unquote, taken by ECOWAS and the African Union, according to a joint statement released after the meeting. And uh, finally, in uh, regard to the South African participation in the peacekeeping forces and the Democratic Republic of Congo, Defense and Military Affairs Minister Tandi Modisi says the South African National Defense Force is still heartbroken from the loss of one of its own in the Democratic Republic of Congo, 
the soldier who was part of a United Nations peacekeeping mission in Monusco died after the helicopter he was in came under fire on Sunday. Another soldier who was left injured managed to land the helicopter safely in Goma, located in the eastern DRC. Modisi uh, said the incident would not deter South Africa from being involved in missions aimed at bringing stability to the African continent. She said uh, the soldier died not only for South Africa, but for Africa as a whole. We take this pain, but we take the pain with great pride because of the contribution of South Africa to the regional peace and peacekeeping and peacemaking effort cannot be denied. If we walk away from the situations which are around our country and around our borders, we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, uh, some 25 years ago. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, uh, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. These programs can be shared with other potential listeners. All you need to do is copy and paste the links into emails and send those emails out to other potential listeners. The links can also be uh, on other blogs and websites as well as shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Oh, there is no fire. 
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. And that was the classic sound of Mary Stafford. I'm going to jazz my way. Uh, from uh, 1921, uh, Mary Stafford, uh, who was born uh, Annie Burns, was an African-American cabaret singer. She was a classic uh, blues singer. Uh, she was uh, from Springfield, Missouri. In January of 1921, Stafford became the first African-American woman to record for Columbia Records. She toured widely throughout the mid-Atlantic states in the 1920s and into the 1930s. She performed at the Lafayette Theater in New York City, where she appeared in Rocking Chair Review in 1931 and Dear Old Southland in 1932. After 1932, uh, she worked outside the music industry in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where she thought she was thought to have died uh, in 1938. Among the 14 sides she recorded between 1921 and 1926 were covers of some of the most popular blues songs of the day, such as Royal Garden Blues, Crazy Blues, Arkansas Blues. She also recorded I'm Gonna Jazz My Way uh, right into the paradise. And uh, that is the track we just heard. Uh, and take up your fr- take your finger off it. Uh, her complete recordings have been released in CD format uh, by her document records on Female Blues Singers Volume 13. She was the sister of jazz drummer George Stafford, who played in her band. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. And this is African-American History Month in the United States. Uh, Started in 1926 as Negro History Week uh, by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, a prolific author and lecturer and bibliophile uh, related to the history of African people. Uh, Woodson, uh, in 1926, uh, formed uh, and started Negro History Week in 1915. He had, of course, uh, issued the Journal of Negro History. And, of course, uh, so many contributions uh, from uh, Dr. Woodson. In 1916, he created the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, uh, which exists today as the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. And, uh, of course, um, if we look uh, at uh, the focus of uh, one of our uh, segments today, and that is Anna Julia Cooper, Dr. Anna Julia Cooper, she, of course, uh, was a pioneering figure in regard to education, uh, literature, and international organizing. Uh, She attended the Chicago Congress of 1893, uh, one of the first uh, Pan-African gatherings in the world. Uh, she also attended the 1900 Pan-African Conference in London. Uh, she also was the author of A Voice from the South uh, by a Black Woman of the South, the first book by uh, Anna Julia Cooper. It was first published in 1892. The book is widely viewed as one of the first articulations of Black feminism. The book is divided into two parts, soprano Obligato, and Tutti Ad Libidum. Each section contains four individual essays. This book led to the term Cooperin uh, being coined when speaking about Anna Julia Cooper. It is considered over the first and full-length black feminist text. And let's listen uh, to a segment, an interview 
on the contributions of Anna Julia Cooper uh, with uh, Anika Prather. Uh, let's listen in. And she would um, engage in discussions with her students that may, it was not just about um, memorizing and regurgitating to pass a test, but she made these students think. She made these students see their, their, their equal humanity. This was really important because, like I said, she was a slave, and her students were also most likely oftentimes former slaves, of course, until she got older. Um, and But what she was doing was taking them on a journey that was similar to hers, where she was using the text for them to learn about who they were as human beings. Hi, this is Tony Williams, Senior Fellow at BRI, and we are pleased to bring you another episode of Scholar Talks. And this one is on the series we're running on Black intellectuals and the African-American experience. And we're honored to have scholar Anika Prather, who's going to discuss early 20th century Black educator, Anna Julia Cooper. The guiding question for this series is what contribution did this person make to understanding the Black experience in America? And Dr. Anika Prather is dedicated to teaching the classics and is the founder of the Living Water School in Maryland, has taught at Howard University and is currently teaching at Messiah University. She is the author of Living in the Constellation of the Canon, the lived experiences of African-American students reading great books literature. Anika, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so excited to be talking about Anna Julia Cooper is, you know, I knew a little bit about her, but to prepare for the interview, I, I read a lot about her and, yeah. uh, and, and by her. And she's just an incredible figure, a very, very interesting figure and, and, yeah. and really important. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, we, we agreed to talk about her. Yes, yes. Great. And so, person to talk about. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, so in my research, I, I, I found that she, Cooper, had a lot to say about first principles and human nature. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think she really believed that people of all races and sexes are born equal. Mm-hmm. They have reason and also, very importantly, human dignity. Yeah. And, and that we can only fulfill those ideals and aspirations of American democracy when we recognize that common humanity or rights that we have. Am I on the right track? Can you tell us a little bit more about Cooper? Yes, and I mean, that actually is what makes her very unique in comparison to some of the other activists of her time. Um, She was very truthful about the Black experience, but all of her arguments and essays we're headed towards a path of um, racial healing and unity. Like she wanted to bring American citizens together. She was also very proud of being an American. Um, there's a quote that she says, um, she says, I know something along the lines of, um, I cannot help but um, have so much hope for my country. And to be a woman in the 1800, late 1800s, probably yeah, probably late 1800s when she made that that statement, early 1900s at the at the latest, um, to say it during that time, just out of slavery, had been enslaved all her life till she was 10, um, probably had seen so many things. She is the daughter of the master, um, who had nothing to do with her. She had every reason to be very jaded in her thinking, but in her writings, you see a real love for her country, um, while at the same time, 
being able to speak out in truth about her experience and the changes she'd like to see, I find her to be a good example for me. It's very easy to fall into a pattern of anger or bitterness or, you know, and, and, and coming from that place. But when I read her essays, I find an example for speaking on things, but at the same time headed towards a space of um, um, loving your country and wanting what's best for it and, and hoping for the best for your country. That's really incredible, right, to have that sense of hope, even though she's suffering under the double yes. burdens, really, of both segregation as a Black woman, but also yes. as, as a woman as well. So yes. um, very, very interesting. Yes. And she was a, an accomplished and, and very well-educated high school teacher and also college professor, eventually got her PhD, yes. uh, at traditionally what we would call traditionally Black institutions. Yes. And she dedicated her life to education for Black people, including Black women. Yes. And so what was the purpose and importance of education, not only for, for Black people, but then broadly for, for all humans? Yeah, I, I think she looked at it as a way to build bridges with each other, right? Um, and she was always doing things to cross those color lines, while at the same time staying true to her community. Um, like if you were to compare her to Booker T. Washington, who was also a great educator, their language is very different. Booker T. Washington, although we respect him, we respect the work that he's done, we respect the fact that he came up from slavery, he is a good example in that, that regard. His language is one of just settle, like accept your place in American society. Eventually it'll take care of itself, so just accept your place and, and try to get along. And Julia Cooper felt like, no, we're going to push those boundaries. We're going to push the color line. We're going to push the gender line. I'm going to tell you the truth about what, what it's like here, why it's not right. But um, I am going to still respect the space that I call home now. Another way that she um, sought to kind of um, cross those color lines, she was, like I said, she was, I feel like, a real strong advocate for building that bridge across the color line and gender lines. Um, and one example you see in that, too, is um, she got her Ph.D. Um, she, stepped, she went to one HBCU, which was St. Augustine, but then she got her bachelor's and master's. She finished up her college work and got her master's at Oberlin. Then she got her Ph.D. at the Sorbonne in France. And so you see that pattern? She's constantly, she got it, and then she would get these things and go right back to serving her community, and then showing how to build a bridge from her community to everyone else. And so as you see that constant back and forth, and she also mastered that in her love of the canon. So in most of her essays and speeches that you read, she makes numerous references to the works of the canon. Sometimes she's you know, quoting to the Tocqueville or, you know, whoever. And so she is constantly engaged in the great conversation with these authors. And she's an example of it. She does it so beautifully, so clearly, almost as if she's saying to the reader, to her students, whoever would listen or read, watch me. Now you follow what I'm doing. And how do I know that's her thinking? Because she, there's a quote that she says, no one but the black woman can say when and where I enter, right? Well, feminists typically take that part only and leave it there. Only, but the, only the black woman can say when and where I enter. But there's more to that quote. It, it continues, no one but the black woman can say when and where I enter. And wherever I go, I'm kind of, you know, summarizing. And wherever I go, the whole Negro race enters with me. 
if you don't say that last part, it becomes very self-centered. You know, you no one's going to tell me what to do. I'm all about my progress. But that's not what that quote means. It was about, it wasn't just about women's rights. It was about human rights. And she's saying, you're not, basically, you're not going to stop me. I'm going to pave this way for everyone who comes after me. And what is that path that she's trying to pave? That path that bridges all Americans to come together, brings them together. And she believed that that work could be done um, through classical education. She was very distraught when she saw Booker T. Washington's philosophy of more industrial education. Um, Booker T. Washington makes a quote basically saying, you know, it's a waste of time for anyone to study Greek and Latin and to read these texts that you don't have a skill. Um, Anna Julia Cooper felt skills were necessary, but she also felt all of us should have this exposure to classical learning because it provides a way for us to dialogue with each other. It is a, it is a common language that we can share with each other because it, it, it reveals a common human experience. Most people in early America were educated classically. So she felt it was a way of connecting all of us, not just accepting your place, not just accepting your place behind the veil, as Du Bois calls the veil. I sometimes think he means the color line. But she said, we can break through that. And, and you can't stop me. And I'm bringing the whole race with me, not to overthrow you, not to hurt you, not to tear down America, but we're coming because we're equal to you and we're going to work with you to make this country a better place. That, that's just a, a great segue to, to my next question. And, and by the way, is it okay to feel inspired as you're talking? <laughs> she's, she's very inspirational. I, I love yes, it. Um, so, so Cooper discussed the importance of, of educational and, and economic opportunities as well, specifically for, for black women, who, as we talked about, suffered under that double burden. Yes. And so what, what role you alluded to it with your quote, but but what role did Black women play in, in improving the lives of all African Americans? And also, how could they help regenerate the larger American culture and yes. politics broadly? You know, I, 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 I keep referring to the kind of the misunderstanding feminists have with Anna Julie Cooper, and it's not because I have anything against feminists. That's not, well, I don't want anybody to mis misunderstand. I just feel like she's being misrepresented or misappropriated. Um, and her, she was very interesting because she was also a very traditional woman. She, she saw black women, all women, because sometimes she would go back and forth between talking as if she was talking to all women, uh, but that, which would include black women. And then sometimes she would go and say, and I'm talking to you, sister, you know, so she was, so, and the way she saw women were, were to be the, like the nurturers of society. She saw us being the keepers, the cultivators, the nurturers of society. We're the ones who kind of hold the fort down and keep everyone together and keep everyone inspired and nurtured, you know, in our hearts and our bodies, caring for society. And um, she talks about how a society is made up of homes, and homes are made up of families, and at the center of that is the woman. The atmosphere of homes is no rarer and purer and sweeter than are the mothers in those homes. A race is but a total of families. The nation is the aggregate of its homes, as the whole is sum of all its parts. So the character of the parts will determine the characteristics of the whole. 
These are all axioms and so evident that it seems gratuitous to remark it. And yet, unless I am greatly mistaken, most of the unsatisfaction from our past results past results arises from just such a radical and palpable error, palpable, palpable error as much almost on our own part as on that of our benevolent white friends. So that, again, expresses her role in family. It's, it's not that you don't do careers, but it's that you never forget your place as that center of the home. So that's, that's her um, thoughts on women. Now, this is interesting for a woman who was Oh, she was a widow. She never remarried. She was a widow by like 21, never had children of her own. Um, and she, um, but she still saw the value of woman in the home, caring for the home, caring for her children, caring for her husband if you're married. Um, and then she says those pods of families are what make up the larger society. They're the ones at home nurturing the child, helping that child become what they're called to be, releasing that child into society. She places a great emphasis on that. It's not just about being the career woman. Um, at the same time, she felt that if you are a career woman, you can still fulfill that role wherever you are. And we see her live that out because even though she was not married and had no children of her own, she used her home as a nurturing place. I mean, people were allowed to live there. They were too poor. And then she would educate them. If they were illiterate, she used her home as like almost a boarding school. Um, when a college, um, the, the, the Freelinghausen University, which was a, which is like our first example of a community college, she was the president of that college. It was meant to educate older Blacks who were still illiterate, you know, still fresh out of slavery, and they would get educated classically, but also learn a trade. When they came on financial hard times, at the time she had this beautiful home in Washington, D.C., she ran the school out of her home and even wheeled her home to the university. So what she felt was, I'm a career woman. I'm making good money in all of my um, adventures. And I'm going to use this to continue to nurture my community, the people in my community, which will in turn bless others. Freeling House and University is not even named after a black person. It's named after a senator who um, tried to stop Andrew Johnson from ending reconstruction. And so that university is named after him, a white man. And here she is working for this university named after him. She very much believed in this partnership between the black community and the white community. And she felt white women, I mean, black women, their role was to help nurture that relationship, to nurture her, their own people, nurture that bridge between the two, do their part to serve alongside her white uh, co-citizens of the country. And so she saw them just definitely as just kind of this um, nurturer of human society and that even if you do have a career outside of your home, it is used to come back and pour into your own community and ultimately pour into all of society. Right. You know, we talk about civic virtue a lot at, at BRI, and it seems like she not only believed that society was knit together by these civic virtues and, and citizens practicing civic virtues, but she often practiced them herself, as yeah. you mentioned. Yeah, she even opened up her home to foster children, I think. At least 10, she at least raised at least 10 children at some point. And these children, she would educate them classically. They'd go to college, and then she'd give them a job in whatever school she was a principal of. And they became teachers, and they would carry on 
her vision for education. She was just really amazing. She's becoming more remarkable as this, this interview unfolds. I, I love it. Um, so, so how did Cooper um, tie individual development of, of intellect and character in education to the common purpose, right? That common purpose of citizenship and, and working together to establish a just and, and, and civil society and, and good relations among all. I really think she, I mean, her biggest tool was classical education. That was her mode. Um, She taught a lot of her classes in this kind of Socratic dialogue um, where her students were exploring, especially the ancient texts. Most of her classes were taught in Latin. And she would um, engage in discussions with her students that it was not just about um, memorizing and regurgitating to pass a test. But she made these students think. She made these students see their, their, their equal humanity. This was really important because, like I said, she was a slave, and her students were also most likely oftentimes former slaves, of course, until she got older. Um, and, but what she was doing was taking them on a journey that was similar to hers, where she was using the text for them to learn about who they were as human beings. And then helping them see, how can I say, oh, there's a quote, I wish I could find it, Um, where she talks about this is the purpose of education, to train up them to see how they could serve in their own, in the country. And and that is the whole duty of man, um, to serve God and to serve their fellow man. And then she would use the reading and discussion of the classic text to illuminate that for them. So what happened as a result, most of her students that she had would graduate from high school and go into some of the top schools in the nation. Oftentimes, they would be the first black student in whatever university. And they would come out and serve society. And it was, she almost saw herself as like, it was like almost this machine of citizens. She was constantly doing the work. To create citizens now, and she's also really important because she's very different from Booker T. Washington. I'm kind of glancing at this quote, but um, she was very different from Booker T. Washington because she's doing this though without teaching them to feel subservient, or without teaching them to forget their heritage, and without teaching them to be um, to assimilate. Assimilation is not the goal. Yes, the, the goal is integration, which means I'm bringing who I am, my culture, my narrative into the American narrative. I'm not hiding it, but I'm showing you how this narrative can support the work of the country. And that's that's the kind of education that she provided. Now, this quote is kind of long, but I really want to read it. I want to read it. And I, I couldn't find a part to leave out so you can see the full picture. And she goes, the Negro has had manual education throughout his experience as a slave. That is her explaining why Booker T. Washington's thinking about industrial education may not be the answer. She, so again, she says, the Negro has had manual education throughout his experience as a slave. For 250 years, he was practically the only laborer in the American market. His training was whatever his teachers decreed it should be. His skill represented the, represented the best teaching of the section in which he found himself. If he did not reckon a knowledge of machinery among his accomplishments, it must be admitted that machinery was very tardily introduced into the Southland. But his methods as a farmer, as a mechanic, as a nurse, as a domestic, 
were the result of the best teaching the peculiar institution of slavery afforded. What was the lack? What is the need today? Is it not just the power to think? The power to will, the power to appreciate true relation, which have been enumerated as the universal aim of education? The old education made him a hand, solely and simply. It deliberately sought to suppress or ignore his soul. We must, whatever else we do, insist on those studies which by the consensus of educators are calculated to train our people to think, which will give him the power of appreciation and make them righteous. In a word, we are building men, not chemists or farmers, or cooks, or soldiers, but men and women ready to serve the body politic and whatever avocation their talent is needed. So that, and then she says, that is fundamental. That quote is everything. I mean, in that one quote, see, she was, she was alive and, and functioning and being an activist for education at the time that Booker T. Washington's popularity was rising. And that quote basically dispelled the myth of, why don't we just focus on industrial education? That would not only keep Black people from being elevated, and it's not that we have the goal of making them elevated above other races, but just elevated out of the low place they were in. And so um, so she's saying we don't need to just train. They, they already have training. Most of them can do a skill. That's what they did as slaves but they were not taught to think for themselves. Everyone was making the decision for them. They weren't taught, and when she said to serve the body politic, they weren't taught to contribute to American society in the political arena. They weren't taught to have a seat at a table where discussions were happening, where decisions were being made. And so she's saying the education we give our people should be preparing them for that type of life in America. And she also talks about it should also help to make them righteous. It should build up their moral standing. We've come, it feels a lot of times that we've gotten very far from that vision. It's about doing the test, filling in the blanks, and just passing the scores. And the character of, of children is not developing. The mind, the ability to think critically is not developing. And the ability to see where we all fit in this big, giant human story. It's not happening anymore. And, and Anna Julia Cooper, even though she's long gone, I wish she was alive. Oh, gosh, I believe it's, it's to read her again is to call us back to those former things. Are, are, by, by the way, are, are there particular uh, essays or books that, that the, the students or viewers should, should really read by, by Cooper? I would get um, this book called The Voice of Anna Julia Cooper. Um, it's put together by Charles Limert and Esme Bond. Um, you can get it on Amazon, and it includes her book, A Voice from the South, as well as other letters, poems, essays, speeches, and a lovely biography on her. It's, it's I mean, mine is falling apart. It's such a, a, an important resource to knowing her. This is really important because she was a very private woman, and it's really hard to know her, but if you read this, you will have a strong sense of what her journey has been, what her philosophy was, what her thinking was. Great. Anika, final question. How does 
Cooper advocate specifically uh, the best path on, on how Blacks are going to confront racial prejudice and, and white supremacy? Uh, and uh, what's the best path forward for, for struggling and, and achieving equal rights and, and dignity, respect, and justice in American society? There are two parts to this answer. Um, I believe she would still want us to keep having the dialogue where we're truly telling our experiences, our narratives, as she um, demonstrates for us in her writing. She never holds back words in expressing what her experience is and how things are still unfair. We need to have those discussions. Then she also doesn't feel we should wait around for someone to change our circumstance. We have to go after our goals for herself. There was a, she has this um, thing that she did where she would call the first step, the second step. She wrote these goals. And on this step, she would, the final step was her getting her PhD. She wrote an essay on it um, or a poem, I think, called The Final Step. It was right after she got her PhD. I'm sharing that as an example because she's saying on the one hand, yes, you're going to hold our leaders accountable to making sure they are holding up to the promises of the Constitution. But they move kind of slow and they're a little resistant. So don't just sit around being angry about their slowness to fix that. You have to aggressively pursue your goals, aggressively push through those boundaries, those cut that color line to achieve equality, to achieve all of your goals. And that is what she wants us to learn, but not to do one without the other. And then finally, all of that is in service to our people and to humanity. Great. Anika, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing your insights into this remarkable figure of Anna Julia Cooper. Thank and you. thank you all for joining us uh, on this episode of Scholar Talks. Please check out our next installments of Black Intellectuals and the African American Experience as well as our previous series on the presidency in the Cold War and our upcoming series on pivotal battles in American history. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. And that was uh, a discussion on the times and contributions of Andrea Cooper. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, our worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, this is uh, African-American History Month, uh, and uh, we are focusing on the contributions of the African people of the United States. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Yeah. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Gertrude uh, Mulroney uh, with the track entitled Trust No Man, and uh, this is uh, African American History Month, and right now we want to move into a discussion, a documentary, audio documentary on the lifetimes and contributions of Ida B. Wells uh, Barnett, uh, a struggler uh, for the liberation of African people in the United States. Uh, She was a journalist, a poet, a person who risked their lives on many occasions uh, to expose the racial terror that African people were subjected to in the United States. This is uh, taken uh, from a documentary on Ida B. Wells Barnett entitled Chicago Stories. Let's listen in. Coming up, she was the ultimate agitator and feared because of it. As racial terror reigned over the South, there were close to 200 lynchings in Tennessee alone. A young African-American woman struck back with her pen. She was writing not just to inform, but to shame. She says, I'm going to challenge you on this threadbare lie that African-American men are lynched because they rape white women. She fled to Chicago, where she emerged as a radical black leader. There was never a time when Ida B. Wells was not getting pushed back, especially so in Chicago. And became an inspiration to a new generation. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter is addressing the same issues that Ida B. Wells took up in the 1880s and 90s. Ida B. Wells. Next on Chicago Stories. Lead support for Ida B. Wells, a Chicago Stories special, is provided by the Nagani Foundation. Additional support is provided by Jim and Kay Maybe. Strategic Growth and Transformation Partners, and by the following donors. It seemed the entire world had come to Chicago in the summer of 1893. Most were so captivated by what they saw at the World's Fair, they were oblivious to what was missing. 
for one visitor, a 31-year-old African-American woman from Mississippi, the omission was glaring. The fair itself was a monument to extravagance. Building after building constructed to display to the world how far America had advanced. Ida B. Wells had come to Chicago to point out what the fair's organizers had ignored. She was angry about the exclusion of the African-American story, especially the progress that African-Americans had made. Post-slavery, African-Americans started doing a lot of phenomenal things. They were elected to Congress. Uh, they were elected to public offices locally. They became doctors and business people. But the signs of black culture Ida B. Wells found at the fair were mostly along the midway, and they represented stereotypes, not progress. Nancy Green, a 59-year-old former enslaved woman, proved a crowd favorite, playing the role of a southern mammy to promote a new pancake mix. Non-white nations were presented as savages or even sideshow acts. The slight was all the more appalling to Ida because she herself was a testament to the strides made by slavery survivors. Since her emancipation, she had become a widely published journalist. So it's like, let's show the world what a great country we are without showing any of the contributions of black Americans. Ida's friend, Frederick Douglass, was the notable exception. He was the only black American in charge of a pavilion, one built by the nation of Haiti. The Haitian government are the ones that invited him. So he wasn't even invited by the United States. And he was one of the most famous, you know, people in the country at that time. The irony didn't escape Ida B. Wells. It seems strange to me that but for an accident, Mr. Douglas would have had no part in the World's Fair because of race prejudice in this country. Yet whenever he went out into the grounds, he was literally swamped by white persons who wanted to shake his hand. And so, Ida stood at the entrance to the Haitian Pavilion, handing out copies of a pamphlet. A clear, plain statement of facts concerning the oppression put upon the colored people in this land of the free and home of the brave. It's around 90 pages. It's really like a little book. And Ida's the only woman <laughs> represented in the book. Wells had written it with Douglas and two other men. She's also the one who raised the majority of the money um, to have the pamphlet published. So you have these three men that are willing to sort of be led by a woman. So this, to me, is her publication. The exhibit of progress made by a race in 25 years of freedom against 250 years of slavery would have been the greatest tribute to the greatness and progressiveness of American institutions, which could have been shown the world. The preface was written in English, French, and German. She was standing in front of the Haitian pavilion every single day, handing out the pamphlet with the idea that people would go from this fair all over the world and say, what the heck is going on in the United States? It was simply savvy strategy, and uh, Ida was a savvy woman. 
Ida B. Wells' battles at the World's Fair were just getting started. But if there was one thing she had shown in her 31 years before coming to Chicago, she never went down without a fight. Ida Bell Wells was born into slavery six months before emancipation in Holly Springs, Mississippi, to James and Lizzie Wells. James was actually the product of the slave owner going into slave quarters. So, allegedly, he did receive better treatment than other slaves. Lizzie was one of ten children. All of them were parceled out. Sold, sold to different places and she didn't see her siblings after that happened. When freedom came, Ida and her parents remained on the estate of their former enslaver and James continued to work there. But now, he was paid for his labor. There was extreme ambition during this period. African Americans were really committed to moving into the mainstream of American life as quickly as possible with as many skills as they could acquire. James Wells joined the board of trustees of the newly founded Rust College. Ida's mother attended school alongside her eight children until she could read. James had, you know, friends of his come over to the house and they would read the newspaper. They asked Ida to read the newspaper to them because, you know, a lot of people were not literate. Displayed by Ida B. Wells doesn't come out of nowhere. She had parents who were very excited about their newfound freedom. And she observed her father, especially his political activism. I heard the words Ku Klux Klan long before I knew what they meant. I knew dimly that it meant something fearful by the anxious way my mother walked the floor at night when my father was out to a political meeting. Four years after emancipation, her father got his first opportunity to vote. Suddenly, James Wells found himself at odds with his now employer. He challenged even his employer, who demanded that James Wells vote on the Democratic ticket, and James Wells refused. And then he found that his former master had locked him out of the shop where he was working, and James Wells didn't argue with him. He just went to town, bought a new set of tools, and opened up a new trade as a carpenter. There was optimism and hope as far as every citizen is, is entitled to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And Ida took that seriously. But Ida's world would be turned upside down when she was 16 years old. It was the summer she left home to visit her grandmother's farm. There was an epidemic of, of yellow fever that went throughout the country, and particularly in the South. She knew that people had fled Holly Springs and assumed that her parents and siblings were among those people. But then one day, some people came to her grandmother's farm and handed her a note saying that both of her parents had died. Ida was 16 years old at the time, and against her grandmother and several other people's um, advice, she decided to get on a train and go back to Holly Springs. She returned to find that her youngest brother had also died. 
Well-meaning charity workers were already there and busy making plans. There was talk of how different people were going to take different responsibility for Ida's siblings. And Ida was like, no, you know, we're not, we're not dividing the family. We don't do that. She had grown up hearing stories from her mother about being separated, sold from her family. So there was supposedly a shotgun on the mantle, and she got the shotgun. I was like, look, I'm going to take care of family. Like, oh, why didn't she say so? Sixteen-year-old Ida found work as a teacher and took on the role of breadwinner with the help of her grandmother. After teaching a country school all week, I came home Friday afternoon, six miles out from town, and spent the time from then until Monday morning washing clothes, cooking food, and preparing things so they could do without me until the end of the next week. Ida's Aunt Fanny saw the family was struggling and eventually invited them to live with her. They hopped on a train, bound for the big city. She moves to Memphis, and Memphis is the place to be. It's, it's a metropolitan city. It is a transportation center, even in the 1800s, for the entire world. She saw it as exciting as a young woman. We shouldn't be surprised by this. She was a shopper. <laughs> she liked to look nice. She often talks about her expenses exceeding her income, in part because she was supporting siblings. But the other part, too, is that Ida was a clothes horse. <laughs> she enjoyed shopping downtown. Although Ida had hoped to secure a teaching post in Memphis, she'd settled at a small school in Woodstock, Tennessee, a short train ride away. But a fateful ride along the Chesapeake rail line would carry her on a much different path. Just weeks after her 21st birthday, Ida boarded the morning train to Woodstock, a first-class ticket in hand. She was dressed in white gloves and a corset, carrying a parasol. She was petite, she was a little under five feet, and very well-dressed, very obviously very well-spoken. During Reconstruction, blacks had the rights. So she had written on that car several times over the, the past couple of years and was entitled to do it. She chose the seat towards the back of the first-class rail car. But minutes later, the train's conductor brusquely informed her that she was seated in the ladies' car, a fact Ida was well aware of. The conductor insisted she move to the smoking car, a lower-class carriage where men could often be found cussing and gambling. As I was in the ladies' car, I proposed to stay. He tried to drag me out of the seat, but the moment he caught hold of my arm, I fastened my teeth in the back of his hand. It took three men to forcibly remove her from the rail car, in which uh, she put up a fight, literal fight. And when she was removed from the car, the passengers cheered. You talk about something that infuriates someone, um, that absolutely infuriated her. Ida struck back by filing suit against the railroad company. She sued the, the Chesapeake Railroad and won and was awarded $500. The judge found the railroad company had violated the law by forcing Wells to ride in a car that was separate but unequal. 
but the lower court's decision would not stand. The Tennessee Supreme Court essentially attacked her personally to say that she was just being disruptive, that she wasn't a lady as she pretended to be. I have firmly believed all along that the law was on our side and would, when we appeal to it, give us justice. I feel sure in belief and utterly discouraged. And just now, if it were possible, would gather my race in my arms and fly away with them. When we think about the modern civil rights movement in Rosa Parks, she has the NAACP behind her. In 1884, it's just Ida B. Wells and her attorney. Ida B. Wells was starting to make a name for herself. She took a teaching job in Memphis and joined a lyceum founded by black teachers. It was a community of sort of thinkers and artists and she actually took elocution classes which is speaking classes. Um, and in her diary, she writes about how she was like trying to scrape up the money to pay for her next lesson. And so you wonder like, what in the world was she preparing herself for? But she was honing her skills. Each program ended with a reading from The Evening Star, a gossip-filled newspaper, which Ida called a spicy journal. She was shocked when asked to start writing for it. As Ida B. Wells first put pen to paper, she found writing to be nothing short of a revelation. She felt like she could sort of explore more of who she was and express who she was through writing, more than she ever could in teaching. I wrote in a plain, common-sense way on the things which concerned our people. Knowing that their education was limited, I never used the word of two syllables where one would serve the purpose. I signed these articles, Iola. When Ida B. Wells first starts writing, she was writing about the things that one would expect uh, a woman who's writing for a church publication to write for. But that started to change pretty early on. As a school teacher, Ida starts to document the segregation in the schools and how the black schools were not getting the same resources and the educational inequities. She wrote an article in 1889 about the Memphis school system, because, which is unfortunate because the article could be literally printed today and you wouldn't know the difference. She railed against her fellow educators. Some of these teachers had little to recommend them, save an illicit relationship with members of the school board. You have to think about the type of person who will start writing editorials and news articles about their own employer. But that's what she was doing. She did not get fired immediately. When the next school year came up, they didn't renew her contract. While teaching had served a practical purpose, writing was now Ida's true passion. She bought a partnership in the most radical black newspaper in Memphis, the Free Speech and Headlight, and became its editor. The paper circulation tripled. What's unique about that moment is not only is she African-American at this time, but she's also a woman. And being a woman in a Victorian America, uh, where she is essentially playing the role of what was then considered what men do. Ida B. Wells was ascending at a precarious moment. As she and other newly emancipated African-Americans made waves, 
white supremacist fervor flooded the South. We kind of gloss over this period as if once the South is beaten in the Civil War, uh, that all of a sudden white Southerners just acquiesce to the people whom they had enslaved now coming into power, serving in political office. That is not the case. Black freedom, black political power was always contested. And so all across the South, we saw black men, women, and children being lynched. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't considered shameful. Newspapers would advertise that a lynching was going to occur to give these crowds a chance to come and watch. One such murder would change the course of Ida's life. She was spending the week in Natchez, Mississippi on newspaper business when word came that three men had been lynched in Memphis. Calvin McDowell, Will Stewart, and Thomas Moss. Moss was like a brother to Ida. Thomas Moss and Moss's wife were essentially her best friends here in Memphis. She was so close to Thomas Moss, Tommy. Uh, she was godmother to his child. Everybody in town knew and loved Tommy, an exemplary young man. He and his wife Betty were the best friends I had in town. Three years before their murders, Moss and his friends had opened a store called The People's Grocery. The People's Grocery was located in South Memphis in an area that at the time was called The Curve. The Curve was a predominantly black community and so you have these three black men that decide they're going to open up a grocery store in their own community. But their new grocery put them in direct competition with William Barrett, a white store owner making money off the black community. William Barrett was infuriated, like, how can these people take business away from him? What started as an innocent game of marbles outside the people's grocery grew heated. And the interesting part is this was an integrated game of marble with white children, white boys, and, and black boys. There was a fight, and eventually uh, adults uh, joined into this skirmish. The white store owner was injured. He convinced the county sheriff to deputize him and gathered a posse. They came late at night, this group of white men, the people, grocery owners, including Thomas Moss. They knew that they were coming. They, they'd gotten word. So they were prepared for this, and they armed themselves, and they were in the store when they got there. And that was a, that was a fight. Several white deputies were wounded. The headlines talked about rounding up every Negro that was involved. Ida's friend Thomas Moss was arrested with Will Stewart and Calvin McDowell and held at the Shelby County Jail. But then a lynch mob decided that they were going to exact their own uh, justice. And so they went to the jail and took them to a sort of a rail yard north of there and killed them. Shot them beat them, um, just lynched them. I do think that we should take a second and really explicate what that word means. Lynching was not simply tying a rope around someone's neck and hanging them, though that is uh, brutal um, and inhumane enough. Lynching was designed directly to send a message to the larger black population 
in the South, in many places, black people were in the majority. So how does a white minority that has lost power and wants to gain that power back uh, do that when they are in the minority? It was through terrorism. Lynching had become a common and accepted punishment for black men who had allegedly raped white women. But now Ida B. Wells, who'd grown accustomed to the brutality of Southern justice, began to wonder. Like many another person who had read of lynching in the South, I had accepted the idea meant to be conveyed. That although lynching was irregular and contrary to law and order, unreasoning anger over the terrible crime of rape led to the lynching. That perhaps the brute deserved death anyhow, and the mob was justified in taking his life. After Thomas Moss, who really was lynched because he was competing with a white business owner, something clicks in Ida, uh, a vengeful spirit, I think. And she decides that she is going to focus on the lie of lynching really for the rest of her career. Ida set out in search of the truth. Notebook in hand, she traveled across the South, interviewing eyewitnesses. There was no grasp of exactly how many black people were being lynched. She would find uh, where lynchings were occurring by looking through white newspapers. And she began to keep basically spreadsheets. Of the 728 murders she investigated, Wells found that only a third of the victims had actually been accused of crimes. She sat down to pen a blistering editorial. Eight Negroes lynched since the last issue of the free speech. Three were charged with killing white men and five with raping white women. Nobody in this section believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men assault white women. Her writing was uh, used to create a sense of outrage, and uh, every word was chosen for that matter. Her writing had this simmering rage. She was writing not just to inform, but to shame. If Southern white men are not careful, they will overreach themselves, and a conclusion will be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Within days, Edward Ward Carmack, editor of the Memphis Commercial Appeal, reprinted Ida's editorial. And she got the attention of the white community and certainly the white press. Unaware that the author of the editorial was a woman, Carmack called on the men of Memphis to avenge the honor of Southern ladies. Quote, the black wretch who had written that foul lie should be tied to a stake at the corner of Main and Madison Streets. A pair of tailor's shears used on him, and he should then be burned at a stake. The white community of Memphis was outraged. A mob of angry whites converged on the offices of the free speech on Beale Street. Finding the newspaper deserted, they demolished the presses and destroyed the offices. But by then, Ida B. Wells had already fled Memphis. By the time Ida arrived in Chicago for the World's Fair, she had been traveling more than a year. She had lost everything at age 30. Not only her physical property and her printing press, but also her friends, which is no small thing. Having lost my paper, 
had a price put on my life and been made an exile from home for hinting at the truth, I felt that I owed it to myself and to my race to tell the whole truth now that I was where I could do so freely. Ida B. Wells circulated 10,000 copies of The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition. Her plea for inclusion was largely ignored. Though the fair's organizers made one token concession. August 25th was designated Colored American Day. Frederick Douglass arranged the program, but Ida refused to even attend. We resented this sop to our pride in this belated way, and we thought Mr. Douglas ought not to have accepted. I was among those who differed with our grand old man. But Ida had another mission at the World's Fair. With the eyes of the world on Chicago, she would use the international stage to expose the terror of lynching. She was probably more looking at it as an amazing opportunity to get the message out and hit thousands of people all at the same time from all over the world. Her message was growing more militant, sharpened through her internationally published works Southern Horrors and A Red Record. She pulled no punches in describing how armed blacks had beaten back lynch mobs. The lesson this teaches and which every Afro-American should ponder well is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home and it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. I recall Ida B. Wells, someone who was very comfortable hanging out in the left, you know, which, which was not very comfortable for people who were sort of straddling the middle or to the right. At the close of the World's Fair, Ida B. Wells set out to find allies for her anti-lynching campaign. For a year, she crossed the globe. Her motivating factor was to inform the world about how this country was treating its own citizens. If you're going to go to the root of the problem, you've got to find support among uh, whites. So she was uh, very good at building allies and very strategic. By the time Ida returned to Chicago in 1895, she'd been a refugee from the South for three years. Despite her many successes, she was financially strained and weary, in need of an anchor. She found just that in Ferdinand Barnett. He was 10 years older than, than Ida when they got married, so that would have made him 43. Ferdinand was a widower. He liked strong black women. He met Ida, he was like, yeah, um, we're going to need to get married. <laughs> His first contact with Ida B. Wells is because she needs a lawyer. Frederick Douglass recommends Ferdinand Barnett. Barnett was the third African-American lawyer admitted to the Illinois bar and the owner of Chicago's first black newspaper, The Conservator. Their wedding was announced in black newspapers nationwide and in a highly unusual move in the New York Times. 
This was the same newspaper that a few years earlier had called Ida a slanderous and nasty-minded mulatress because of her writing about lynchings. And now her wedding announcement occurs in that very same paper, the New York Times, the paper of record. Wells took the hyphenated name Ida B. Wells Barnett, and she also took over Ferdinand's newspaper. Having always been busy at some work of my own, I decided to continue work as a journalist, for this was my first, and might be said, my only love. The conservator circulation of about a thousand readers represented a healthy chunk of Chicago's roughly 6,000 African Americans. But the city's black population was growing. Ida B. Wells and two dozen more arrive in Chicago in the 1890s and thus put themselves in a position to be the institution builders of black Chicago. Ida and Ferdinand lived alongside most of the city's African Americans in a narrow strip of Southside land known as the Black Belt. Its boundaries were often enforced by violence. If you go west of State Street, you're in the stockyards community, a largely Irish community, and you're likely to get beaten or killed. You're not going to move too far east because middle-class whites don't want you there, and they certainly don't want you on the lakefront. So it's about four blocks wide, but it keeps moving southward. This will be the hub of the African-American community. And what's important here is that it is entirely self-sufficient. African-Americans find employment within their own community. African-Americans build businesses, newspapers, their political leadership. African-Americans are virtually institutionally complete within these southward migrating communities, uh, which came to be called Black Metropolis. Ida took delight in the community's cultural riches. There were churches, Olivet Baptist, Bethel AME, and Quinn Chapel AME. And there were black social organizations. Ida B. Wells Barnett took her place among the cream of the 400, a social registry of Chicago's black elite. Ida B. Wells and Ferdinand Barnett were the political power couple, certainly in the African-American community in Chicago. The couple gave birth to their first child, Charles, in 1896. Ferdinand hired a nurse so Ida could return to the lecture circuit with their newborn baby. Ferdinand was attracted to the fact that she was out there doing things, and he provided the support for her to continue doing that. I honestly believe that I am the only woman in the United States who ever traveled throughout the country with a nursing baby to make political speeches. The following year, Ida gave birth to Herman, then Ida Jr., and finally Alfreda in quick succession. This is a woman who's quite aware of the sacrifices she was making as a mother and the sacrifices her children had to make because she was often on the road. While Ida B. Wells Barnett continued to shine a light on injustice through journalism, 
she also started looking to politics as an agent for change. In this new arena, she faced the same obstacle as every other American woman. She could not vote. So instead, women like Wells made their voices heard through women's clubs. These were enormously popular and also beginning to be very influential and powerful. They were really the, the means by which women could have some influence in society. Ida helped found the League of Colored Women. Her supporters even created an Ida B. Wells Club. The women's clubs were an opportunity for women to pursue some self-education. And then they began to move from there into improving education for children, beginning kindergartens, beginning libraries, and ultimately to lobby government about getting the right to vote. As Ida B. Wells Barnett found opportunities in Chicago's civic life, she now started urging Southern blacks to flee north as she had. Literally, she tell people in the South, like, look, come north. It's, it's not perfect. I'm telling you it's not perfect, but it's way better than what you're experiencing. And so people would come. Because the new migrants had only one neighborhood to choose, the Black Belt was swelling. The beating heart of the Black Belt was now a strip of South State Street known as The Stroll. This was where the action took place. There were juke joints, restaurants, hidden gambling dens, and people constantly walking or promenading from about 2,700 South down to about 3,500 South. And so people could prominently show off their clothes, their gait. You didn't walk, you strutted. But cracks were forming in the Black Belt. As new migrants met up against the forces of segregation, housing became scarce and crowded. The Barnetts refused to be contained. They moved to a new home at 3234 Rhodes Avenue, making them one of the first black families to move east of State Street. Ida B. Wells was known to keep a gun in the house for protection. The political statement that they're going to live anywhere they can, people like Ida B. Wells, were committed to the idea that segregation in any form was an insult to African Americans. The Southern migrants still stuck in the Black Belt were often viewed as outsiders in their own community. Hordes of ignorant and dissolute, said one white reformer, to describe the Southern blacks who, quote, lowered the standard of the colored population in our midst. To distance themselves from such insult, longtime black Chicagoans formed a society limited to those who could prove their families had lived in the city at least 30 years. They called themselves the Old Settlers Club. Many of the old settlers are successful largely because of relations they've established with wealthy whites. These African Americans find the new African Americans as a threat to their leadership. They're not as polished. They're not as mannered. Uh, as somebody once told me, the problem is they didn't work for white people. Ida B. Wells would make it clear which side of this social divide she stood on in 1906. 
She had been elected to organize a charity ball for the Frederick Douglass Center, built in memory of her old friend who had passed. The previous year's gala had been held at the prestigious Masonic Temple downtown. But Ida instead set her sights on the boisterous stroll and a rich Southside hustler named Robert T. Motts. Now, Robert T. Motts was a gambler, fairly shady person. But Robert Motts went to Paris, discovered Parisian entertainment, decided that his community needed something like that. A place where African-Americans could put on plays, uh, write comedies, enjoy African-American music. Motts already had the location, a disreputable saloon in the heart of the stroll. Robert T. Motts, however, he gained his money, was rich. And so he had the money to invest in something that he could be proud of. Mott's Peking Theater was his chance to turn over a new leaf. When he gave Ida B. Wells a tour, she saw the makings of a first-class establishment. The place was beautiful. She thought it provided class because it moved him away from selling booze. She liked the idea that it provided an opportunity to see African-American artistic excellence. I felt that the race owed Mr. Motts a debt of gratitude for giving us a theater in which we could sit anywhere we chose without any restrictions. When Ida announced her event will be held at the Peking, many in black high society were outraged. Citing Mott's reputation, the Chicago Daily News refused to even print the announcement. But the loudest assault came from the neighborhood churches. African-American ministers spearheaded by Archibald Carey Sr. campaigned against holding an event for the African-American elite in a place like the New Pekin Theater. He, he gave sermons about it. Not only at his own church, he gave sermons at other churches. Ida B. Wells hated hypocrisy. She'd been a member of Bethel AME, and she remembers when a former pastor had been guilty of inappropriate relations with members of his congregation and had been expelled, only to be brought back with the support of people like Archibald Carey. Ida moved ahead with her charity ball, and despite threats of a boycott, it raised $500. It was eminently successful. It cemented a friendship between Robert T. Motts and Ida B. Wells until his death. The Peking was the first black-owned theater in Chicago. It would give the city some of its first tastes of ragtime, making way for other jazz clubs on the stroll where the likes of Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway played. And Ida B. Wells had supported it, despite the objections of African-American leaders. She challenged the black elite. She challenged the black political organization. She challenged white leadership. But she was willing to step on toes because she had a larger purpose. The black migration from the South that exposed fault lines in Chicago was also ratcheting up tensions across America. In 1908, the nation saw more than 80 lynchings in every corner of the country. 
happens in the Northeast. We hear a lot less about lynchings, but of course, wherever black people go, lynching follows as a tool of social control. A lynching in Springfield, Illinois that summer would once again change the course of Ida B. Wells' career. In Abraham Lincoln's hometown, two black men were jailed. One accused of murdering a white man, the other falsely charged with the rape of a white woman. A lynch mob of roughly 5,000 whites assembled. They stormed the east side of the city where blacks lived, lynching innocent men and burning the neighborhood to cinders. At least seven people were killed before the Illinois Guard brought the riot under control. I had such a feeling of impotency through the whole matter, which seemed to be becoming as bad in Illinois as it had hitherto been in Georgia. The following Sunday, Wells was hosting her weekly Bible study for young men when the conversation turned to the horrific events in Springfield. The young people she was meeting with were so appalled by the violence that took place. The nature of those meetings goes from being um, more about their faith and more and more about what they can do about racial oppression. They continued to meet every Sunday, calling themselves the Negro Fellowship League. And the group turned its attention to the needs of black men who had come north in search of opportunity, only to lose their way on the stroll. The stroll could have a negative effect on the life of a young male migrant. Because beyond the cigar shop along State Street, beyond the outer doors in the back was a place where you could gamble. Ida's friend, Jane Adams, had been concerned with the plight of immigrant women and children, and she had created Hull House to serve them. But there was nowhere for young African-American men to turn for help. They weren't welcome at institutions like the YMCA. All other races in the city are welcomed into settlements. YMCAs, YWCAs, gymnasiums, and every other movement for uplift if only their skins are white. Only one social center welcomes the Negro, and that is the saloon. Being from the South, she knew what kind of conditions people were coming from. I think she felt like she could relate to them on a personal level. Her dream, you know, was to create sort of the black hole house, if you want to call it that. Ida B. Wells unexpectedly found a sponsor for her vision at a Palmer House luncheon. Jessie Lawson was the wife of the wealthy editor of the Chicago Daily News. The Lawsons, who were donors to the YMCA, were unaware that it was not serving blacks in Chicago. Ida told Jessie Lawson about her dreams for the Negro Fellowship League, and they set out to find a location. That location in her mind had to be in the midst of where the greatest need lay. And that was along State Street at the north end of the stroll. Ida B. Wells Barnett opened the Negro Fellowship League on a warm Sunday with a program for the neighborhood. As the room filled, they left the back door open to let in the breeze. But before long, 
The program was interrupted by the boisterous sounds of a group of drunken men outside, shooting dice with a pail of beef. Rather than call the police, Wells set out to invite them to the next Sunday meeting. And so when she goes into the alley to talk to those men who are drinking and, and playing dice, you know, she, she doesn't have any airs about her. Wells recalled their surprise when she extended her white-gloved hand to shake on their promise to return. They all said they didn't want to dirty my white gloves by shaking hands, but reiterated that they would go away and also repeated their promise to come next Sunday. There were black people who were from, quote, upper class who wouldn't even come visit the center because it was in a location that they didn't feel comfortable visiting. My great-grandparents were unique. They were both educated, but at the same time, they were willing to go into the hood. <laughs> Ida had built a beacon on the stroll, a place where men could find jobs, housing, legal help, and moral upliftment. I think she felt a tremendous responsibility. She's telling black folks, leave the South, and yet she's seeing people come and they are suffering, and no one is looking out for them, not even other black Chicagoans. But Ida B. Wells would feel the impact of that awful Springfield riot in another way. In the riot's wake, Ida and other activists received an invitation from Oswald Garrison Villard, grandson of the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. His letter, known as The Call, proposed a conference to discuss present evils. The following spring, luminaries like W.E.B. Du Bois and Jane Addams gathered in New York. On the first day of the conference, Ida B. Wells Barnett delivered a forceful speech on her 20 years of lynching research. This is what Ida B. Wells was doing around the issue of lynching. She takes lynching from a fringe issue that no one really, black or white, will touch, and she turns it into a central issue. At the close of the conference, the activists agreed to start a new organization. It would become known as the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Although Ida was initially chosen to be on the NAACP's founding committee, at the last minute, Du Bois substituted her name. My guess is that people like W.B. Du Bois were sexist. And I think we have to call that. He did not promote easily African-American female leadership. Secondly, the leadership of the NAACP from the beginning largely addressed to the African-American middle class and to the African-American upper middle class. But Ida B. Wells' campaigns had become increasingly geared toward the poorest of the poor. And despite her impassioned speech about lynching, the NAACP was not ready to confront the crisis she'd dedicated her career to. The NAACP, which Ida helped co-found, even though she doesn't often get the, the name recognition and credit for that, didn't want to touch that issue. It was something about the ideas that Ida had about, for example, lynching having its base in sexual relations. 
it, it was their thought that uh, this was a no-no. This, in fact, was something blacks like Du Bois wouldn't approach because he knew that white people would be offended by this discussion. Ida B. Wells, now 50 years removed from slavery, still did not have the power to vote. But she had joined Illinois women in a partial victory. In June of 1913, women in Illinois can vote in the presidential election and they can vote in local municipal elections, but they cannot vote, for example, for governor or for senator. Encouraged, Ida B. Wells took up the suffrage cause with new fervor. Noting that white suffragists were working like beavers, she established the Alpha Suffrage Club. Their slogan, race interest first, last, and all the time. The club mobilized black women in the Black Belt Second Ward and eventually helped elect Chicago's first black alderman. Those are ordinary women, not the high uh, polluting black women of Chicago. Ordinary women were told they had worth and could make a change in society. That spring, Ida B. Wells set her sights on Washington, D.C. On the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, she boarded a train bound for the National Suffrage Parade. Wells travels with the Illinois delegation. She gets to Washington, D.C. There are state delegations from all over the United States, and Illinois is very large. They've got drum majors. Wells and 250,000 women approached Pennsylvania Avenue. But Alice Paul, the lead parade planner, had a last-minute concern. Southern white women wouldn't march if they had to do so alongside black women. Planners suddenly asked that the black delegates march separately, in the back. Ida B. Wells Barnett was struck by the news. So Wells says, of course, I'm not going to do that. I came here with my delegation from Illinois. I intend to march with my delegation. And they march anyway, all together. And so the march is integrated. And it's just classic Wells. I mean, she stands for her principles no matter what. Though her Negro Fellowship League had now been serving men on the stroll for 10 years, Ida B. Wells was struggling to keep it afloat. Her wealthy friends admired her dedication, but wouldn't venture to the stroll and work among the uneducated, unemployed black men. I don't know if she originally thought she would be doing this work by herself. I think she expected and was hoping for other people to be as outraged as she was and to get in the trenches and fight. And she had never received the kind of wealthy patronage Jane Addams secured for Hull House. By the winter of 1920, the Negro Fellowship League's rent was in arrears, and Ida B. Wells was finally forced to close its doors. It is important that when we think about the strength of this black woman, when we think about the strength of black women, that we never forget that it always comes with a cost. And it certainly um, 
it took a toll on her. It took a toll on her physically. When Ida B. Wells Barnett was 68 years old, she attended a book reading with her oldest daughter. The subject was a book by Carter G. Woodson, the man who created Black History Month. But Ida was dismayed to discover that her anti-lynching efforts weren't even mentioned. She met a young woman who had heard her name but didn't know what she did. That was stunning for her that she herself was not known by a new generation. So she sat down to put her story on paper. In the first pages of her autobiography, Ida B. Wells explained, the history of this entire period, which reflected glory on the race, should be known. Yet most of it is buried in oblivion. And so, because our youth are entitled to the facts of race history, which only the participants can give, I am thus led to set forth the facts. I guess it was her story, but it's also the history of our country. Ida B. Wells' unfinished autobiography ended mid-sentence. A fitting reflection, perhaps, of a woman who knew there's still more work to be done. In March of 1931, Ida B. Wells Barnett awoke with a worrisome fever. She died a few days later. She is buried next to Ferdinand Barnett, her partner for more than 30 years. Ida B. Wells and Ferdinand L. Barnett, Crusaders for Justice. Can put it down? Yeah. I am a native Chicagoan, and there was an Ida B. Wells Holmes on the south side of Chicago. Most people had heard the name, but it got to a point where it was just a disconnect between who Ida B. Wells as a woman was and the work that she did and what people associated with her name. In February of 2019, Ida B. Wells Drive became Chicago's first street named for an African-American woman. The next year, Wells was posthumously honored with a Pulitzer Prize. New York Times writer Nicole Hannah-Jones won her Pulitzer Prize the same day. When I found out that I had won the Pulitzer on the same day as my spiritual godmother, Ida B. Wells, a woman who did not receive that type of recognition in her life and never would have, um, I cried like a baby. Recently, a multitude of young activists and justice seekers are taking up the work of Ida B. Wells. For older historians, the reason why is simple. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is addressing the same issues that Ida B. Wells took up in the 1880s and 90s. Moreover, Black Lives Matter has a considerable component of black female leadership. I need for these racist systems to be dismantled. What we need is equity. What we need is recovery. They're taking to the streets. Police! They're writing essays. They're organizing cadres. Black Lives Matter. Women are faith and we believe in fighting. They are addressing systemic violence. 
more broadly than simply the issue of police brutality. I want jobs and resources in black and brown communities on the south and west sides of Chicago. Violence is caused by economic disparity, is caused by the increasing gap between the rich and the poor, and that is exemplified by the city. This is Ida B. Wells. In the last and unfinished chapter of her autobiography, Ida B. Wells offered words of wisdom to future generations, writing, Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Ida B. Wells was clearly outstanding and unique. There's no doubt about that. But I think what she would say is use your talent to the best of your ability to see her life as an example of what it takes to create change and the price. But not to glorify her or make her out of reach of the actions of ordinary people. Lead support for Ida B. Wells, a Chicago Story special, is provided by the Nagani Foundation. Additional support is provided by Jim and Kay Maybe, Strategic Growth and Transformation Partners, and by the following donors. Uh, that was uh, Ida B. Wells, A Chicago Story, uh, giving uh, some biographical information and reflections on the lifetimes and contributions of uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett. And we're commemorating African American History Month, uh, 2023. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, February the 11th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with our concluding segment of today's Pan-African Journal. Well, I'm 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and of course, uh, we're here uh, broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again to uh, yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And, um, of course, um, if you would like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that is at the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, Pan-African Radio Network is uh, located at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, we have um, uh, been uh, here uh, for uh, many years. Uh, we, of course, will continue uh, to uh, deal uh, with the current situation uh, that exists uh, throughout uh, the world. And uh, we are a audio news magazine uh, that is brought to you here on a weekly basis. And uh, this uh, month, of course, is um, African-American History Month, and um, that, of course, is a uh, very important uh, time period uh, here in the United States, and uh, we, of course, are here uh, to bring you a primary source uh, information uh, in regard uh, to the situation uh, involving African people uh, not only in North America, the United States, uh, Latin America, and Africa, but throughout the entire globe. And, of course, um, all of these programs uh, that we bring uh, to you on a weekly basis are archived. Uh, now we have more than 1,200 uh, archived editions uh, of the Pan-African Journal. And they're all available by uh, simply logging on to the Pan-African Radio Network. And, of course, uh, the Pan-African Radio Network uh, can be reached uh, at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, we are uh, here uh, at least uh, twice a week. Uh, Sometimes uh, we are here um, 
during the holiday seasons uh, more uh, than twice a week. And uh, what we are doing uh, this month, of course, is focusing in on uh, the contributions of African people uh, throughout uh, the entire globe, as we do every uh, single week uh, here at the Pan-African Journal uh, Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. And um, African American History Month uh, was uh, founded uh, by uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson uh, in 1926, and as we mentioned earlier, uh, Wilson formed the Association for the Study of uh, Negro Life and History some 10 years prior to 1926 in uh, 1916, and of course, uh, in 1915, and in uh, 1916, uh, he formed the Association, uh, he, he formed the uh, Journal for uh, Negro History, uh, which was a pioneering uh, organ uh, that uh, dedicated itself to research and publication uh, in regard uh, to the concerns and the historical developments uh, of African people. And, of course, uh, this is very, very important uh, in regard uh, to uh, the situation uh, that uh, African people find themselves in. Even uh, today, uh, we're talking about uh, the third decade well into the third decade of the 21st century, uh, there's, of course, the need uh, for clear, uh, documented uh, uh, research and publications uh, in regard uh, to the situation uh, involving African people. So uh, right now we want to listen uh, to some excerpts uh, from uh, the State of the Nation address uh, delivered by Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa. Uh, it was just delivered uh, two days ago. Let's listen in. I also extend my greetings to Deputy President of the Republic, David Dabe de Mabuza, the Executive Mayor of the City of Cape Town, Mr. Gordon Hill Lewis, former President Thabo Mbeki, former Deputy President Vale Gambete, President of the Pan-African Parliament, the Right Honorable Chief Fortune Charumbira, the Chief Justice of the Republic, Justice Raymond Zondo and members of the Judiciary, Premiers here present, Mayors, Heads of Institutions Supporting Democracy, Deputy President of the Governing Party, Mr. Paul Mashatile and leaders of other parties, members of parliament, chief of the South African National Defense Force, commissioner of the South African Police Service, commissioner of the South African Revenue Service, fellow South Africans. It is indeed a great honor for me, despite what happened earlier, to stand before you this evening to present the State of the Nation. The moment of the State of the Nation endears us to ask ourselves a number of questions, but the one I want to focus on today is what defines us as a nation? We are not 
a nation defined by the oceans and the rivers that form the boundaries of our land. We are not defined by the minerals under our earth or the spectacular landscape above it. We are not even defined by the languages and the cultures that we have as a people or by the songs that we sing or even by the work that we do. We are at our most essential a nation defined by hope and resilience. It was hope that sustained us during the struggle for freedom and it is hope that swells our sails as we steer our country out of turbulent waters to calmer seas. Even in these trying times, it is hope that should sustain us and fuel our determination to overcome even the greatest of difficulties and difficulties we have by the time. Just three years ago, our country was devastated by the worst global pandemic in living memory. Thousands of lives were lost. Companies that employ many of our people closed and jobs were lost. COVID-19 did not browbeat us into submission or disillusionment. Working together, we overcame that crisis and we have started to recover. And it is important for us to pause for a moment and look back where we have come. That we have recovered much as a number of families, more than a hundred thousand or so, have lost their loved ones. But it is during this period as we look back and as we look at what has been unfolding that we need to say there are certain things that are happening in our country that we need to take note of. Today our economy is larger than it was before the pandemic. Between the third quarters of 2021 and 2022 around one and a half million new jobs were created in our economy. That's something to note. The presidential employment stimulus has provided work and livelihood opportunities to more than one million people who did not work. Last year, our matriculants, and something that we need to be proud of, defied the effects of the pandemic to achieve a pass rate of 80%, and we ought to congratulate them for that achievement. And we see this spirit of resilience and determination and achievement in our artists, in our musicians, actors, authors, sportsmen and women who are making waves here at home and on the continent and beyond our shores. Banyana Banyana made us proud when they won the Women's African Cup of Nations to become the African champions. Zeis Bantwini, Nomnebo Zikode and Voter Kellerman just recently made our country proud 
at the Grammy Awards for their collaboration in the song Bayetu. What we have achieved as a nation over the past year, despite our challenges, should remind us that the promise of South Africa is alive. The progress we have seen should give us courage as we look and as we must look to a better future. And yet I address you this evening, fellow South Africans, in your homes across the country and many people are suffering, many of our people are worried, many are uncertain and many are without hope. But of this I am certain, whatever the difficulties of the moment, whatever the crises that we face, we will rise to meet them together and together we will overcome the difficulties. This we will be able to do if we work together and more importantly if we leave no one behind. We gather here at a time of crisis. Our country has for many months endured a debilitating electricity shortage that has caused immense damage to our economy and to the livelihoods of our people. And for two years before that, our society, as I said, was devastated by COVID-19 that caused great loss of life and much hardship. The pandemic worsened the situation of deep unemployment as we lost more than two million jobs. The pandemic negatively affected livelihoods and increased poverty. In July in 2021, we experienced the worst public violence and destruction in the history of our democracy, causing over 300 lives. Last year, parts of the Eastern Cape, KwaZulu-Natal and Northwest were struck by catastrophic flooding that caused extensive loss of life and also destruction of homes and destruction of infrastructure. And now persistent load shedding is impeding our recovery from the effects of all these events. We know that without a reliable supply of electricity, businesses cannot grow, assembly lines cannot run, crops cannot be irrigated, and basic services are interrupted. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from the State of the Nation Address uh, for the Republic of South Africa delivered by President Cyril Ramaphosa uh, just uh, earlier this week. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today. And uh, we'd like to uh, remind you uh, that uh, the... Uh, Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, uh, can be accessed over the Pan-African Radio Network by merely logging on to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Newswire can be read uh, in order to stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. All you have to do is go to our website at panafricannews.com. 
www.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, this program with uh, the voice and the music of the legendary Empress of the Blues, uh, Bessie Smith. This is uh, Abayomi Azikwe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
get hella fun. 